Welcome to episode 237 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. Today, I'm joined for the guest interview by Dr. Depayan Ghosh, uh, who's the uh, Posen Fellow at Harvard's Shorenstein Center and co-author of a new report, Digital Deceit 2, A Policy Agenda to Fight Disinformation on the Internet. And I agree with about half of his uh, report, uh, um, so should be an entertaining interview. Uh, for the news roundup, we've got Nate Jones, formerly with Justice uh, and the National Security Council's Te- Counterterrorism Office. Uh, Nate, welcome. Thank you. And David Chris, also uh, formerly with the Justice Department as the Assistant Attorney General in charge of the National Security Division. And there's plenty of stories that will call on his expertise. So, David, great to have you. Thanks, Stuart. And I'm your host, Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and uh, holder of the record for returning to Steptoe Johnson to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Uh, okay, uh, let's jump right into the stories. Uh, there's another indictment uh, of another Russian for more uh, election interference, but this time um, – this round of elections. Uh, uh, David, what do you make of the indictment? This is a, a criminal complaint against a woman named Elena Kusyanova, uh, who was the chief accountant for the Internet Research Agency um, and worked for Putin's chef, Mr. Prigozhin. She's a fascinating woman, lives in St. Petersburg. Uh, she describes herself uh, on a YouTube video that she recorded as just a simple Russian woman, mother, uh, and uh, small accountant. And she's uh, very excited to have been accused of having such a major impact on our election. So you have to have to, you have to really uh, admire the Russians for their shamelessness. Uh, uh, yeah. This this is it, this is just in your face trolling, isn't it? It it really is. Um, it's remarkable how quickly they got it up. Uh, and for a simple woman who just knows how to cook fish and raise children, as she described herself. Um, it's amazing, you know, how, how quickly she was able to get onto YouTube with this um, with this rebuttal. It is about as persuasive as the claim of the uh, GRU officers that they were in Salisbury to see the cathedral. Um, she is charged in this complaint with conspiracy to defraud the United States, which is sort of uh, becoming a more and more standard charge uh, coming out of the Mueller investigation. And uh, the claim is, you know, that that she was uh, the chief accountant in this fairly large project Latka, um, which is named after a region of Russia and which is sort of the umbrella for all of Russia's election interference efforts since 2014. And the idea that the goal of this effort by the Russians, as it's described in this uh, complaint, is to sow discord and exacerbate divisions and undermine faith in democratic institutions in the United States. You know, if this were a more stable, unified, uh, truth-oriented time in our national politics and culture, we might see be more inclined to laugh this kind of thing off. Um, but as it is, you know, it's it's of concern. And the the complaint really shows a, a couple of things. One, a a fairly elaborate corporate structure and entity uh, for funding and carrying out the mission. Um, which is sort of interesting. Uh, the Russians really do seem to have adapted to capitalism. Um, and number two, um, much more sophisticated and better tradecraft. Uh, they are learning how to do their jobs better. They're using better English. Uh, they are more sophisticated about sort of 
who to pretend to be in certain fora and who to pretend to be in other fora, depending on the target audience. And, and also, um, there, 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 there are lines on American politicians are plausible uh, from the point of view of could Americans believe this? Yes. Um, it's actually kind of fun to see some of their internal comms laid out because, you know, any, anybody who's been in the U.S. intelligence community has at one time or another sort of wondered, you know, as we prepare profiles on various foreign leaders and try to understand their motivations, um, what are they preparing about us and how wrong or right would we think their assessments of our leadership and motivations uh, would be? And so here you get a sense of sort of the Russian assessment of the American political scene um, for whatever that's worth. And, it, you know, they, they are not wholly unsophisticated. Obviously, I'm not going to endorse everything they say, but it is an interesting spin on our politics and the way in which they can continue to undermine us and, and, and undermine faith in democratic institutions and rule of law. Um, they have a big budget for this, relatively big budget for this operation. You know, it's tens of millions of dollars uh, over a couple, three-year period. Uh, they have multiple bank accounts. Um, and they, they're attacking Bob Mueller now. So, of course, you know, the, as part of the, one of the strands of their activities. So they're getting more sophisticated, more aggressive. Um, and you just see that they are continuing to uh, to do what works and for an and activity for which they've really not yet been punished in any way that would deter them. It's also notable, I think, in that this complaint's filed in the Eastern District of Virginia. It tells you something about Bob Mueller's strategy as the special counsel looking into all of this. He is effectively now acting like a startup incubator, um, and he is creating little spin-out businesses that he sets up on their own. And so he's got EDVA doing this case, and NSD's got a case, and Southern District of New York has a case, and District of Columbia U.S. Attorney's Office has another case. So the, the business is proliferating, and it's not being centralized in the special counsel's office, which I think is, is a good strategy in the sense that he's diversified the portfolio, and uh, any one of these offices can now go forward and follow the evidence where it leads them. So one of the things that I was struck by uh, is uh, that Bob Mueller's running into a little bit of trouble with the uh, uh, the claim that uh, uh, this kind of activity defrauds the United States by defrauding uh, the Justice Department's FARA people or the uh, Federal Election Commission. Uh, um, uh, how serious do, th do you think that problem is? And is, are we going to see that here as well if if these charges ever went to trial? I don't I don't know yet. Um, I, I will say the, the charges you know, sort of have a certain intuitive appeal in the sense that they're they're pretty broad and conspiracy is, of course, the darling in the prosecutor's nursery. And it allows them to bring in sort of one umbrella charge a lot of different strands of behavior. Um, I'll also say, not to play too much inside baseball, you know, Mueller has on his team Michael Dreeben, the former and actually current, I think, uh, criminal deputy in the Solicitor General's office. And there is no better smarter, more knowledgeable criminal lawyer that exists in America today. So I would say in the long run here, my money is on uh, these charges to survive. Okay. Um, so let's, there's another story that uh, I'm just going to touch on. It's a fascinating story, but I have kind of promised Nick Weaver, who uh, responded to my tweet about this by uh, demonstrating uh, a great interest in it, that we would hang on to this for next year, next week when he is uh, in the roundup. Uh, uh, this is 
China Telecom is very persuasively accused by a group of Israeli researchers of having essentially kidnapped uh, months worth of traffic. And instead of uh, having it go to, say, uh, South Korean government from the Canadian government, it now it just went first to Beijing, and then it went to the South Korean government. And the Beijing government was able to look at anything that wasn't encrypted uh, uh, for months at a time. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the way in which this was done and the implications for U.S. and Chinese policy going forward are going to be uh, pretty significant, I think. Yeah, I'll, uh, I don't want to take away from Nick, but I'll just say, you know, the, the way in which the world's telephone lines and other communications lines are laid out can be very significant. We saw a while back Brazil with its aspirations to create a direct cable to Europe. And the other interesting aspect of this, I guess, is whether it is just mirroring a fat pipe of communications for surveillance purposes or whether it could actually be used literally to interfere that is seize and block transmission or delay transmission or even potentially if they're very sophisticated you know mess with data uh, and then change it and transmit it through there's a lot of interesting possibilities here and i will look forward to hearing nick's thorough assessment of it sounds good sounds good so um there's a, a similar uh, a suggestion here that um, in a story saying that President Trump keeps talking on his iPhone, even though the Russians and the Chinese and probably other intelligence services are listening. Uh, uh, Nate, uh, um, is that really uh, uh, what the president's doing? Uh, it seems so. I mean, this story at a high level has been out there for quite some time. Obviously, and you know, we'll leave the the irony between this and and his campaign central focus on Hillary Clinton's email servers to the Twitter sphere to discuss. But you know, I think we're continuing to see, I guess, two things emanating from from this story that that I, speak, I think speak more broadly to the president's approach. And one is his disdain or disregard for the advice and expertise of career professionals, including in the information security realm. And, you know, their deep concern about his behavior is once again now spilling out into the newspapers uh, in this context. The other thing is, you know, he continues to sort of put his personal and political interests or, or um, creature comforts uh, ahead of what some believe is the country's best interests. Um, you know, the, the only thing that's really new here is um, that there's there's a little bit of flavor for the the fact that the Chinese may be having some success in accessing his communications with with um, friends and and colleagues, and their effort to wage this this influence campaign against the president himself, um, and uh, whether that can work is is I think still yet to be determined. But I think I think the bigger uh, picture here is that's that's not the only reason to be concerned. There are a lot of reasons why even private communications between the president and and close personal friends and colleagues um, could be useful or exploited by foreign governments um, to the to the um, detriment of, of this country. And, and it behooves the president to be a little bit more careful and circumspect in in these conversations and, and in his use of his um, private uh, iPhone, I guess. Yeah. I, I, when you're president, you don't have any truly private conversations. Everybody you talk to 
with very limited exceptions, wants something from the president of the United States. And uh, uh, if um, uh, if he's having private conversations with people who are also tied to business interests in other countries, those other countries are going to try to get those guys to say what uh, uh, is in those countries' interests. And now they have an ability to actually check up on their billionaires when they talk to Trump uh, uh, and make sure that the message that the billionaire claims to have delivered was actually the one delivered and also to judge uh, how much of an impression it made. Uh, uh, I think um, even if these are only private conversations in the president's view, uh, uh, he's crazy to be doing them in this fashion. Yeah. And I think, you know, if anybody other than someone who is elected by the American public to lead the executive branch was engaging in this kind of behavior, I think, um, you know, we would uh, see uh, pretty swift and severe action taken against them um, if it posed these kinds of risks. And so, you know, at this point, until he comes up for reelection, he's sort of immune from that kind of um, those kinds of consequences. But um, but I think, you know, it, it shows that he's being judged by a different standard than virtually anybody else in the executive branch would be if they engaged in in similar behavior, contrary to the advice of their security folks. So I, I, what I'm hearing is is a, a, a very refined version of lock him up from you. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and I have to say, I you know, uh, giving credit where credit is due. Uh, if the uh, YouTube v- video was Russia's uh, demonstration that they've mastered trolling, uh, uh, the Chinese response to this was equally uh, um, uh, tongue in cheek. They said, if the president's having a problem securing his iPhone conversations, maybe he should try a Huawei phone. Um, So, uh, uh, Tim Cook, I won't spend too much time on this, even though it is three things that uh, usually set me off. Tim Cook, the EU and privacy, all in one story as Tim Cook goes to the EU and say, oh, we're such sad Americans. What we need to do is is have a GDPR so that you can put my competitors out of business and I can have all of the business because I'm privacy protective and they're not. Uh, I'm I'm not sure there's any... And this is all dog bites man. Um, it's only the fact that Tim Cook keeps doing it and getting headlines for it, uh, maybe due to the Apple reality distortion field, that uh, that it even made it into the paper. Here's a story that is fascinating. Uh, the um, FireEye put out a story that said um, – that a an intrusion that made the papers into a Saudi uh, the the uh, FireEye didn't say Saudi but uh, New York Times did into a Saudi um, uh, uh, petroleum facility uh, and that could have caused fatal accidents uh, was that the the malware was actually designed in a Russian um, uh, institution um, uh, and they offer some pretty persuasive evidence. Nate, uh, uh, this is a this is kind of an interesting. Uh, take on what we had previously thought was the Iranians' work. Yeah, that's right. And and to me, there are, I guess, a few things that are really interesting about this story. One is, you know, as we see more and more of these these efforts by private entities and public ones to attribute cyber attacks like this, you you really start to appreciate that despite the challenges associated with making those links and doing this analysis it's hard for hackers not to leave some digital footprints that can be used to trace things back to them. And, and I think that 
you see this once again in FireEye's analysis. There are, there are little tiny mistakes uh, or you know pieces of tradecraft that are being used that are are I think pretty persuasive. You know, as as we saw with the the U.S. government's analysis of the the Russian efforts to influence our election, it does take time. It can take months, if not years, to fully appreciate all the different aspects of this and to dig up the evidence. Um, but you know, um, over time, the truth does sort of come out eventually. Uh, the other thing that I, I find interesting um, is that these private companies, whether you know they're they're some of the major tech companies or these private security companies like FireEye, there's a limit to what they can tell you, right? They they only have access to certain information, um, and you know they were able to attribute this to the Russians, uh, as you said, pretty persuasively in this case. But they can't tell you a whole lot about whether they were doing it on behalf of the Iranians, whether this was just the Russians, you know, efforts. Um, if so, what their motivations were, what their actual intentions were. And that's where, you know, is when you contrast it with some of the indictments we've seen coming out of uh, not just Mueller, but in the past with the U.S. government, they're able to to, ex- you know, exploit other avenues of, of information gathering and intelligence collection to um, to provide more color on on the the intentions and the motivations of these nation state actors and provide you a, a fuller picture of what's going on. And we still don't really have that, in my opinion, in this case, um, although they they do um, pretty persuasively point the finger at at some level of Russian involvement in this. So I, I'm guessing uh, the, this institute, the, it's the Chemistry and Industry in, uh, Institute, has been around since the revolution and before, uh, uh, got paid to do this. Um, and they said, this is terrific. It's like selling an F-35 after you've uh, uh, built it for yourself and you're just uh, reducing the uh, uh, sunk cost that uh, you had to cover by selling it off to uh, to other people uh, knowing where it's going to be used and you don't care yeah. whether it affects the Saudis. Uh, um, seems like a, a, a logical thing, but we may find that out uh, hopefully in yet more indictments to come. <laughs> yeah, one of the interesting things about this, Stuart, if I can just jump yeah. in, is like there's developing more and more now a sort of state of the art around the attribution of cyber incidents. Uh, and you see, in, as Nate was saying, in these complaints and indictments and in the private sector reporting on this various methods by which attribution is now undertaken, and it's a super important area of law for the world right now and policy. What I think you're also going to see is criminals and others becoming more sophisticated in trying to plant false information uh, to lead people astray and, and cause them to believe it was somebody else. So the offense and defense on this is going to continue to escalate uh, as the sophistication rises on both sides. So I have I have legal advice for the head of this institute. Uh, do not go to the Saudi embassy for a visa. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, uh, some very quick uh, uh, hits. Uh, Yahoo has finally settled from that massive breach that basically breached all of their uh, accounts, and it uh, follows the uh, um, uh, the Baker rule for just how cheap it is to settle class actions for uh, for breaches. Uh, Fifty million dollars to cover two hundred million people who had three billion accounts. Uh, uh, that comes out even if you estimate it by 
person to about 25 cents a person. And uh, in theory, you could get up to $375 if you could prove that you spent many hours trying to deal with the fallout. Um, But my guess is uh, the important thing from the company's point of view is this was a dirt cheap settlement at the end of the day, uh, at least when you look at the number of uh, accounts that were compromised. the uh, uh, <laughs> Cambridge Analytica is paying its largest, the largest fine that could be imposed. Uh, uh, Nate, I, I still am puzzled over this because you can say that there was a uh, an improper application of the rules, but the fact is, uh, all of these alleged privacy abuses were people getting paid to hand over the information of other people that they were in contact with on Facebook. Uh, it, it's um, it's a questionable violation to my mind, especially one that, w- that would get the maximum. Uh, and my guess is it's really – this is just a, a revenge for the perception that uh, Facebook helped to elect Trump. Yeah. I mean, I guess to be slightly less cynical, but still somewhat cynical, I think, um, you know, you could argue that this is the UK government, you know, on some level trying to figure out how to um, use the the sticks at its disposal to try to influence private companies to be more aggressive in confronting um, efforts of all kinds to influence uh, democratic elections or undermine uh, confidence in those elections or in the rule of law. And, you know, ironically, they're doing that by, um, as you point out, twisting the rule of law to a degree to achieve a particular end. But, um, but as you said, you know, there's a very good chance that Facebook will appeal this and, and, uh, we'll see what that, uh, appellate process produces if they do. Um, but I, you know, I think there are some, some that, you know, I think valid reasons for governments to be concerned about, um, efforts like the Cambridge Analytica um, approach to influencing elections and, and trying to get ahead of that and use what tools you have to to try to get others to to snuff that out. So the British um, commitment to privacy has some limits. Uh, 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 somebody hacked Belgacom, the big uh, uh, ISP in Belgium, uh, and uh, filled it full of uh, uh, spyware uh, uh, and uh, the Belgians are conducting a, a long investigation, have conducted, and they asked the British to uh, help them track down the uh, substantial evidence that GCHQ might have done this. Uh, and the uh, British said, uh, yeah, I don't think that would be consistent with our national security or our sovereignty. Uh, and besides Brexit, 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 uh, uh, we're not uh, turning over anything to you. And I think the investigators are about to give up the the ghost because uh, they are not getting anywhere. Yeah, this is, um, you know, this is a little bit of kabuki theater as surely nobody is surprised by um, the other side's reaction uh, to all this. Uh, Proximus, which is the new name of that entity in Belgium, uh, was, according to some stuff leaked by Snowden, um, the victim of a watering hole attack that um, compromised a few employees who visited a fake LinkedIn site and that apparently let GCHQ into their network where they moved all over the place laterally and otherwise to uh, get a lot of juicy information. Um, it's 
it's hard to imagine, particularly with Brexit going on, uh, that the British government is going to cooperate with this investigation. But I suppose the Belgians had to ask. Um, and as you say, it's gotten a little press recently, but uh, doesn't really look like it's going to go anywhere as a joint Belgian-British uh, joint venture of, of investigation. And last story, uh, we covered in some detail the uh, the Uber um bug bounty slash ransom payment to, to people who um, hackers who found a bunch of uh, data, downloaded it, then went to the company, asked for a ransom in a context where you could, if you stretched, said, well, I guess they're asking to participate in our bug bounty program. And why don't we give them $100,000 uh, as a bug bounty? And then we don't have to report it as a breach, uh, which turned out to be a disaster for Uber and its management. Uh, uh, and now it turns out a disaster for these hackers who, having discovered this scam, tried it out on a LinkedIn subsidiary and said, uh, well, you know, we've already picked up uh, nearly uh, seven figures, uh, which is what I think low six figures apparently translates to, um, from another company. And we found a bunch of your stuff, too. We'd like you to pay us as well as part of your bug bounty program. Uh, and instead, they got indicted. Does highlight the ethics of, uh, of bug bounty extortion and the like and the, and the sort of fine line between um, offering your assistance with making sure that uh, no fire occurs uh, in the building and um, other kinds of tactics which uh, we frown upon through the vehicle of the criminal law. Yeah, there, it's, 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 it's too bad they, these guys um, may have lived up to their uh, uh, promise to destroy the, uh, the Uber data, um, uh, but uh, uh, it's not that final line. You either join the bug bounty program or you don't. Uh, you know? <laughs> and if you're, if you're hacking somebody and claiming it's a bug bounty, you need to be in compliance with their bug bounty rules. Uh, uh, it is a little bit of a post hoc effort to put lipstick on the pig there, isn't it? <laughs> Oink, yes. Uh, okay, let's turn to our uh, interview with Dr. Debayan Ghosh, uh, uh, who with Ben Scott uh, wrote the uh, uh, report, Digital Deceit 2, A Policy Agenda to Fight Disinformation on the Internet. Okay, our guest interview uh, today is with Dipayan Ghosh, Dr. Dipayan Ghosh, uh, uh, who's got a great uh, um, uh, resume already uh, for somebody who's uh, clearly pretty, pretty young. Uh, you were a Facebook uh, privacy policy guy. Uh, before that, you were in the uh, uh, Obama White House, and now you're at the Harvard Kennedy School working with uh, Tom Wheeler from the FCC on platform policy. Yeah, it's uh, it's a it's a it's so great to be here, Stuart. Uh, thank you so much for having me, and I'm, I'm honored as a as an avid listener. Um, and uh, it's uh, it's great to be here. Okay, well, we're going to talk about your report, uh, which you did with Ben Scott, uh, uh, called "Digital Deceit: Digital Deceit Two. And it is um, well. Let me ask you, what problem are you solving here? Well, the problem we're trying to address is broadly the disinformation problem, and. The first report, which we which we put out in January, uh, is an attempt to analyze the way that this whole problem works, the way that disinformation spreads uh, through online platforms, and the business model behind those online platforms that encourages its spread and the consumption of disinformation. Uh, and this second report that we released last month uh, is uh, is a response to. Okay, now that we know that this is a problem and now that we understand that perhaps this business model is driving it, 
what are the policy measures that we should take to respond to it? Okay. So uh, the the idea is that the uh, uh, the platform's business model, advertising to people about whom you have a massive amount of data, is part of the problem, at least, of digital disinformation. Uh, certainly, it's the most salient one in the last 10 years because the platforms are new in the last 10 years. Uh, um, and so the question is, what can we as uh, political actors do about uh, the, the, the mismatched incentives? Uh, um, so well, let me ask you a question that isn't really in the report, uh, uh, but I haven't gone back to digital deceit one. Do you think that um, the bias of platforms against conservatives is a real problem? Well, uh, I think overtly, explicitly, we can see that there maybe is some evidence to suggest that there is a problem here. But I actually don't think that if, if the question is, is there an intentional bias against uh, conservative thought and conservative perspectives and viewpoints uh, that is that has been decided upon as the as the internal corporate position by company leaders. Of course, they're not going to do that, right? It, 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 it's more a question of what are all the incentives inside the company and uh, what are the assumptions inside the company about what's hate speech and what's not, what's acceptable speech and what's, what goes beyond the, the pale. Well, uh, it's this is a hard question to answer. I mean, I, I do think that overtly, again, it, you could suggest that uh, companies have taken corporate positions that uh, that that aren't in alignment with with conservative perspectives um, in in certain cases, as you mentioned, right. hate speech could be one, um, misinformation uh, could be another. Uh, again, I don't think there's an intentional. Uh, decision-making process behind this, uh, but I think you could say that at least on on evidence, yes, there yeah. there is this there is this bias. So I I I, I agree with you. Or maybe I feel strong, more strongly about it, but the uh, about the evidence and about a sense that this is not so much intentional as it's the water in which they swim. They they, they don't fish don't notice the water in which they swim, and uh, uh, the social media folks out in Silicon Valley really don't see their bias for anything other than, you know, bien pensant uh, uh, thought. Uh, um, but the concern among conservatives about platform bias ties to a degree to some of the issues you are raising, because if, if you think that there's bias there, you might ask the question, well, is there a regulatory solution? Is there an economic solution? Is there a competition solution? So um, just this is by way of giving you a sense of the perspective I brought to some of the things you said, because some of the things struck me as um, uh, working toward solving the problem that I see and others didn't work pretty orthogonal. Uh, so let's, let's – um, unpack what you had to say. Um, you really boiled down your re uh, recommendations to three things. You want more transparency from the platforms, especially about ads and what they're doing with the data. Uh, you wanted a whole set of privacy rules uh, and you wanted uh, new competition policy. So why don't we break it apart? Because uh, um, I thought the, uh, uh, the ad transparency uh, – was interesting, but maybe a limited, uh, pretty limited. Uh, you basically endorse the Honest Ads Act and say that plus a little more uh, is what we ought to try. 
Absolutely. Um, I think we have to look back at the business model here. Part of the business model is uh, is is about concealment. Uh, that is to to uh, for, for the leading internet platforms to uh, hold information within and not expose it, because doing so would 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 reveal things that. Uh, go against their their commercial interest. So right? this is the, the revealing their algorithms, revealing how they target ads and the like. Absolutely, that's okay. part of it. Um, so our uh, this is again this is a re- both reports written with uh, with Ben Scott, uh, Doctor Ben Scott, and and Ben and I have have uh, have been thinking a lot about this transparency problem. Our proposed suggestion, our suggestion is that is that we should have a regime for political ad transparency that brings the same kind of uh, things that a consumer might expect for for transparency in, in political ads on broadcast or radio uh, to to the digital world. That's, so that, that seems like sort of, duh, why, why, would, why would that not be the case? And I, my memory is that uh, when he was up on the hill, uh, uh, Zuckerberg said we recognize there's going to be regulation, more or less endorsed honest ads, if I remember right. So uh, Silicon Valley kind of sees this coming and is prepared to give way at least to the extent of uh, the Honest Ads Act, which is not quite what you got on broadcast, but close. I think we we've gotten to that point. I, I think for for a long time, Mark Warner and uh, John McCain and Klobuchar senators uh, in 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 the U.S. were pushing for the Honest Ads Act for a long time. Started throughout seven in twenty seventeen, uh, the industry wasn't really coming to the table. Right. Uh, and then as soon as Cambridge Analytica the Cambridge right. Analytica they, they, incident they, 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 happened, uh, we saw people like Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg flip overnight and say, "Oh, actually, we we." Despite the fact that you know they're the industry's lobbyists were pushing against it behind closed right, but doors, the, but the companies couldn't stand the heat. They they couldn't stand the heat, and they flipped and they said, "Oh, we actually love the Honest Ads Act. We love the principles therein, and and in fact, you don't even have to push that as law because we're going to take these steps voluntarily." And they have produced some transparency centers, which I you know I I have to say the idea of going to visit those just fills fills me with tedium. Uh, are they? Is it worth going to their ad transparency uh, uh, pages? Uh, I think it's worth going there if you're a certain kind of person, like a journalist or uh, right. a researcher or uh, somebody who's trying to understand this from an academic point of view uh, or just academically interested in, in these kinds of things. But uh, for the most part, 99% of the American electorate is not going to go in and, and try to look at it. And, so, and you, 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 you make the argument that people shouldn't have to go look it up. That should be displayed with a mouse over or something uh, on the ad. But I, I was – puzzled by why, first, how you limit this and why you limit it. Uh, political ads, a political ad is defined, at least you suggested, as basically dealing with a political issue uh, that could, you know, that has national significance. Uh, um, and that could be almost anything, right? Uh, and how do you decide, uh, how are the platforms supposed to decide, well, this is political and that is not? Yeah, it's it's a conundrum, and and of course, uh, a lot of press organizations and other kinds of organizations that that aren't political per se, but are pushing content that uh, has to do with hate speech or with uh, with a Republican candidate or a Democratic candidate, that their content is getting flagged as as political. Um, uh, so, 
I, why, why not just yeah. why not just do it for all ads? What's what's wrong with just saying uh, we don't fully understand how this is being used to affect the way we think about things? People can take their posts and uh, uh, es- uh, elevate the posts uh, circulation by paying for it. That feels like an ad. Uh, well, let me be clear. I I'm not against that. Okay. Uh, I I think I'm all for more transparency in in advertising, digital advertising, and I think we should know the provenance of the ad. The impact of the ad is in how many people have been attempted to be targeted, uh, also the targeting parameters of the ad, and all that information should be in context. And the worry on the part of the platforms is that this will lead to uh, gaming of the system. Everybody will say, what does it take to get Google Juice? I'm going to do that. Uh, and every time the uh, the algorithm changes, they'll change their content to uh, uh, to get maximum value out of it. Uh, uh, and look. Companies won't be able to um, uh, keep secret things that uh, will be misused. Absolutely. I think those are at least the explicit arguments that that the industry makes. And uh, I I think also the industry is very worried about, as you say, revealing their intellectual property, their their secret sauce behind their algorithms because uh, ad targeting and content curation are are the uh, thing that sets Facebook and Google apart from all right. their competitors and whoever is whomever whichever companies are able to target uh, a client's ads most effectively to the biggest audience is going to rise to the top of this industry and take it over right then they'll be able to show better click through and right. better results uh, in stores etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, okay so um, the problem this addresses though at the end of the day, I think is the problem of the Russians buying ads that you know we didn't know it was Russians. Uh, uh, does it address Cambridge Analytica in a significant way? I think I think it can to an extent. I think we have to get into privacy uh, a little bit as well, but um, but to an extent it would because if if we could follow the principle that. Uh, the 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 person seeing the ad should know the targeting parameters. Right. Um, why 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 did you see this ad essentially? Exactly. So so Facebook, for example, is actually more transparent about that right. than Google is. So you can click into the 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 down arrow in the top right of an ad and and click why am I seeing this ad and you'll get some high level descript description of of why. Um, but not I, I th- necessarily who bought it. Not not necessarily who bought it. N- n- none of that other content, especially for obviously an ad that's not political. Um, I think I think we need to go a lot further, and this this gets into the the privacy argument as well. But um, yes, I, I think if if you're if you're looking at the Cambridge Analytica problem, uh, the eighty seven million people whose data that that uh, was was accessible by Cambridge Analytica. Um, Cambridge Analytica working for let's say a political client would have if it was if it was really uh, doing everything that it could would have um, started analyzing those 87 million people uh, started um, uh, bucketing them into different uh, categories uh, and uh, engaged in for their clients engaged in uh, a contingency based advertising campaign to see what kinds of ads work for different mm-hmm. constituencies and what gets the most reshares and uh, organic reach and um and to be able to say, see that that you were targeted for particular reasons 
whether it's by Cambridge working for another political actor or, or some other uh, PAC or, or candidate, uh, I think can go some way. But again, you already alluded to this transparency is not going to solve this problem. But I do want to, be, before we move on, I do want to ask one more transparency question because uh, one of the ways in which uh, conservatives feel that their speech has been disfavored is uh, it's been derevenueized. Uh, and uh, the platforms say, well, we had some users who didn't want their ads to appear next to this kind of content. Uh, but in some cases, they just said, you know, we don't like you. Get out. Uh, we're not going to we're not going to send money to your YouTube account, uh, no matter how many people look at it. Is that something about which there ought to be transparency as well? Decisions about um, which kind of content is being disfavored by which advertisers and uh, which kinds of content are being disfavored just by the platforms? For sure. Yeah, I, I see no uh, – I'm thinking about the public interest mm -hmm. here and I see no way that having that level of transparency available to the yeah. public would harm the public. Right. OK. Um, so you also talk in here about uh, um, – Bot disclosure. Uh, you know, I am a bot. Uh, this, 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 this Twitter account is not a real person, um, and that's rather similar to the uh, what I call the California Turing uh, uh, test, uh, where California has said you cannot disguise the fact that you're a bot if at least you're trying to uh, defraud someone, which is kind of a pretty limited disclosure requirement. Uh, um, is this the beginning of implementation of your recommendation? Uh, I think so. I think so. I, what, we, what we talk about in the report is the Blade Runner law. And uh, this is the idea that, uh, you know, any... Which is just a cooler name than California Turing <laughs> Test. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, just... just uh, uh, as a political actor, if if you are if or any any actor that that is running a a robot account to disclose that or or have a requirement on the platforms that are able to detect uh, that kind of activity to disclose that. So uh, it, it, yeah. there doesn't strike to strike me as any really good reason not to do this, other than if you're a platform, it means some of your uh, subscriber account. Data will be uh, uh, will be reduced, but right. other than that, is there really a good policy reason on the other side for for not having bot disclosure? You know, I can't think of one. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I realize that's not your job. But, uh, okay, um, and then you the the thing that I was puzzled by and skeptical of mm -hmm. was disclosure of automatic algorithms used in serving ads. I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, um, a, because I wasn't sure what problem was being solved there. Uh, and uh, uh, maybe you can tell me what it is you were trying to get at with that. Uh, well, the the use of algorithms is going to increase in this space. For sure. Um, we, we, we have that, – that's the, that's, that's the platform's answer to everything. Oh, you know, we'll have machine learning solve this problem. Right. Um, and – well, so so machine learning is being uh, used on both sides. It's being used by political actors to try to push their content in a in a effective way. Right. Um, uh, that is to be a little bit more specific. What uh, political actors like, I believe, Brad Parscale, who who managed Trump's uh, the Trump campaign's activity, uh, what what 
they did is is really test out all sorts of different configurations of ads and then run them against all different pockets of the country to see what fits. So uh, I, I got to ask it because you were in the Obama administration and we heard so much about how brilliantly uh, the Obama administration and the, and the campaign had used social media. How could it possibly be that this guy who made his money in real estate and uh, you know, uh, only knows how to use Twitter could come up with uh, a use of Facebook that was apparently so much more effective than the Clinton campaigns? Well, uh, look, I, I wouldn't attribute this necessarily to the president. Um, yeah. I think Brad Parskill was very well trained in yeah. uh, what's known as commercial uh, marketing and uh, and but better than that entire team of uh, uh, Digerati uh, uh, on the Clinton team. It just seems so weird. I, I wasn't. I, I I advised the Clinton team as right. as Ben did, and uh, so I, I can't claim uh, any any of their operations or or to have decided anything. But what they would say is that we had a we had a uh, principle that 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 we didn't want to. Uh, step over um, okay. and oh, so they think they were more moral than the Trump, Trump guys. Uh, you, you could you could probably there get were them to things say that. they yes. wouldn't do. That's right. That, okay, interesting. Okay, that uh, uh, well that fits right because uh, it was it was my uh, assumption that if she had won. She could have used all the same techniques and we'd be hearing about how wonderful and cool it was instead of how evil and uh, manipulative it was. But uh, OK. I, uh, well, I, I, let me no. let me just say that I I personally I don't think that anything that Brad Parscale, at, at least what has been revealed. Right. Uh, I don't I don't think anything there, at least as far as I've read, is uh, evil. Right. Um, I think that he was just playing within the rules of what is allowable, mm -hmm. uh, and um, and it was really mostly fair just game. A B testing out of a, at a micro level. That's right. Yeah, I, okay. I think it was all fair game. I mean, you could make the argument that uh, our Congress should pass laws against that kind of activity, and right. that would be a very hotly hotly debated uh, right. legislative proposal. But I, I don't I don't see any problem with what has been reported about what he did. Okay. Um, so that's that's your set of proposals and we will get to privacy in a second. But uh, um, And the problem it solves clearly is not knowing who's doing what – doing things to you. Does it solve the problem of social media trying to divide us and put us in filter bubbles? It seems to me that uh, we'll, we may want to talk about that in privacy, but it, uh, transparency doesn't really tell you you've been put into a filter bubble necessarily. Not necessarily. I mean, the closest you'd get to that is through the uh, ad targeting parameters that that could right. be revealed, um, but but that doesn't really get you to the point where uh, you could you could conclude that yes, I've been put into the support Kavanaugh filter bubble or the. Right. Uh, the the Pizza Gate filter bubble. So I, I I know you want to talk about privacy, and I want to since we uh, we're running low on time already. Um, I want to tell you straight up, boy, that was the least persuasive part of your paper. <laughs> I, it, I, I I I I felt like I should be playing Carly Rae Jepsen, uh, call me maybe in the background because it was like a period piece. It was like it was. I I felt like you were saying, you know. The Obama administration, when I was there, we came up with all these great ideas and we they're still great ideas. But I don't see how uh, giving people – giving platforms less data uh, 
changes the ability to uh, influence voters uh, in significant ways. Uh, it might make it more of a black market for that data, but they're going to have the data. If they can't sell it, it just means you're going to reinforce the monopolies or duopolies that are there now. Uh, I, I thought the idea of saying we should all be able to take our data away and, and really consent. These are the sort of uh, uh, prescriptions you gave. Were interesting privacy policy, uh, but uh, not really addressing the problem of disinformation. So uh, uh, get, uh, tell me why I'm wrong. Well, uh, I think I think Ben and I have, have concluded the disinformation problem is really driven by uh, the collection of information about us. If we look at the business model, the business model is about um, creation of sticky services, yep. the collection of data through those services. Uh, which contributes to these behavioral advertising profiles. Those profiles include uh, information. Stickiness, you know, they want stickiness without regard to the data they're collecting from the stickiness. The stickiness allows them to serve more ads. Absolutely. But uh, the practice under underlying it all is the development of these behavioral advertising profiles. Mm-hmm. Uh, without that, uh, there's, well, without that, which, which, um, allows the companies to infer your personal preferences and interests and beliefs and likes and dislikes, they're not able to uh, piece together the last part of it, which is the development of algorithms. And uh, those algorithms that are built to do two things, which is curate content and keep people coming back to these sticky services, uh, and target ads, which... Uh, contributes to their revenues directly. But we should, in general, we should like, unless we are self-loathing, we should like the idea that they're giving us stuff that we want. Absolutely. Uh, although I'm, I'm familiar with the argument that says, you know, uh, we all like pork rinds, but a steady diet of pork rinds is going to kill us. Uh, um, but other than, uh, so I, that, I, that seems to me is not really addressing the problem. The other is you're, you're sort of saying the platforms have a business model. We don't like what the platforms are doing, so let's screw with their business model. Well, I don't think we're saying we should screw with their business model. In other words, to be more explicit, I don't think we're saying that Chanel or Nike or the NBA shouldn't be allowed to engage in targeted advertising over right. Facebook. Uh, I think what we are saying is that the creation of this uh, the, the commercial regime uh, for the service uh, of, uh, of Chanel or Nike, a traditional advertiser, um, has uh, has been great. Um, it's it's uh, cut costs in this industry. It's it's allowed for more effective engagement. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it is it has created a system through which nefarious actors are able to infiltrate very easily, uh, fronting as legitimate businesses and, as, and legitimate political actors and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, and they are part of this uh, data regime as well. Um, they are, uh, they're absolutely getting access to the types of inferences that Facebook has made or Google mm-hmm. has made about us, almost necessarily so without our consent. Yeah. So um, I, 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 I guess I can't help thinking this ship has sailed. The amount of data about us is going to continue to increase online, uh, uh, and ads are going to be based on that. Uh, and, Efforts to stop that are a little like King Canute telling the tide to stop. Uh, uh, it just doesn't feel like it's going to uh, solve the problem. And mm. you know, giving people data portability, it just means that somebody, you know, uh, some third party is going to say, "Hey, 
port all that data over to me so I can use it to serve ads for you and I'll give you a free toaster too. Uh, and so we're not really going to end the trade in data. We just might cut the consumer in on a little more of the, of the payoff. Well, you know, I, I think I, I think I'd push back a little bit and say that data about us becomes less and less relevant uh, each day that uh, it exists out there. Mm -hmm. And that's why uh, that's why company the leading companies in this sector are collecting data continuously about us over time because uh, our behavioral advertising profile right. uh, changes by the day. Right. Once, becomes, once we bought the car, we're not interested in the ads for other cars. Of course. Um, and, and our interests and preferences change over time. Um, and so the more recent that can be, the more current that can be, the more valuable it is, which is why these companies are so valuable because they – uh, they they engage with us every day. Right. Um, so uh, so I think that the value of data in this sense in the digital advertising ecosystem falls off pretty quickly. Um, and so if we are able to institute uh, solid po uh, privacy regimes, they would still have a lot of meaning. Um, if we are able to institute a, a regime by which a user is able to uh, consent. Uh, and and really uh, say but that we, we consent all the time, you know. I, 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 and and I don't want the solution to be, oh, now you have to read it before you consent because nobody's going to do that. It's just it's just right. a, a roadblock. Um, all right, look, look, we. I think the most promising idea in this space is to say if you think you're abused by the platforms uh, then and the platforms have a monopoly or a duopoly or an enormous network effect, uh, uh, why don't we go at the monopoly? Why don't we go at the network effect so that uh, instead – so that you can have the Fox News of platforms as well as the CNN or uh, MSNBC of uh, platforms. Um, a, and there I thought your suggestions for changes were, you know, in the right neighborhood, but but a little thin. Yeah, I, I think I think this is definitely an area that, that deserves more scholarship and, and uh, more investigation. I, I think uh, a lot of people these days are talking about antitrust reform. I don't. I don't mm -hmm. think the answer is uh, necessarily necessarily stops there. Right. Um, you mentioned the network effect. Part of the reason that these companies are so valuable is because more and more people come to them, are attracted to them, and they have these global platforms that uh, engage and help people engage in communication. Um, that's, that's something that's tremendously valuable and to just, uh, break it up using antitrust authority might not be the right, um. Yeah, uh, I, I, 16 little network effects just isn't going to make it. Is that what you're saying? You can't, you can't just break up the company on, uh, by saying there will be four, uh, social media, uh, companies. Right. Um, you could, you could say that, you know, let's split off, uh, the different services. Yes. Into different companies, and I think that that argument definitely has some more validity to it. Um, uh, but uh, b because the only value that they add to each other is is the sharing of data across those right. services, um, and I think you could very easily make the argument that no, that 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 shouldn't happen, or at least these types of mergers and acquisitions should have far greater scrutiny than they do. Um, and that's where we start. I think we or you or you could say the solution is to go in and take apart some of these acquisitions from the past where we can still see 
different uh, uh, social uh, graphs. But I, I agree with you thinking about it from a consumer point of view. Uh, you may only have 20 people that you want to share stuff with, but they have 20 people and it's not the same 20 people. And before you know it, everything has been interlinked and splitting it up is really hard to do. Exactly. Um, but you could say, well, fine, we've got a picture sharing uh, uh, service and that is separate from our social media or separate from our messaging uh, uh, system. So you could still probably break them up. But my guess is that's going to turn out to be harder than one would like. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which is why we uh, we suggest, yes, scrutiny over mergers and acquisitions, but also beyond antitrust reform, uh, a whole set of competition policy reforms that can really uh, bring uh, bring our regulatory authority to bear uh, in other ways, uh, specifically through more narrow uh, restrictions on what the industry can and can't do. Yeah, so this uh, is sort of conditions respects. on the acquisition, on the merger, uh, which That's always right. struck me as kind of uh, a toll for creating yes. a monopoly. It's not really – it's not an enormous structural uh, solution. It's just saying, well, I've got a couple of good ideas and I want you to do this and then I'm going to let you buy this company. Well, if we if we agree that the network effect is something that's natural and contributes to society in you the sense – We have to surrender. Then we have to surrender. We have to sur surrender some way. I'm not saying that's the right, the right solution. It's, it's really a suggestion from us. But – um, I think cutting through all of that, we we also suggest uh, data portability, a, a radical proposal for portability that um, that really can bring bring about greater competition in the sector. Uh, and, and and how is that? I mean, I saw I saw it was a, it was a very detailed proposal. Looked like you'd uh, worked on it in the past uh, as well. But basically, it says customers should consumers should own their data, and they should be able to demand it all in a, a format that is easily manipulable uh, and searchable, and then presumably give it to somebody else who says, "I'll pay you for it." What consumers have lost uh, in the face of this industry is their autonomy. Um, if we if we want to give them their autonomy back, uh, what we have to do is not just allow them to download your information mm -hmm. through the Facebook tool or download your data through the Google tool because that's just explicit data that you've shared with those platforms and you could easily share with anybody else. So those companies are not providing anything really through mm -hmm. that. Uh, what is really valuable are the inferences about your behavioral profile. Right that those companies have compiled over time. And that, should, uh, you think, should be portable as well. That That is, well, that's the meat of the industry. And isn't that then going to just create a secondary market? So I, I, I guess what this turns out is it allows you to say uh, that the big social platforms uh, will have all this data, but they won't be able to use it in an anti-competitive way because a dozen other uh, companies will uh, uh, jump, uh, be created that also want to want want the pipe full of um, the transactional personal data, so that they can serve ads uh, uh, without worrying about the uh, the dominant ad uh, servers. Yes. That, 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 yeah. So, so it's it's yeah. it's it's not trying to get at the social network effect. It's trying to get at the uh, uh, the way in which 
um, advertising reinforces the uh, uh, the duopoly. Absolutely, and it does because if if we look at the digital advertising market, it's dominated by these two companies, uh, and and the the profit margins that they're making off of that is mm-hmm. are are really tremendous. I mean, these companies are essentially websites. Uh, where you see an ad and, and they collect uh, right. they collect lots of margin over over the, the relative costs uh, and in creating a in creating this regime whereby uh, they have these very marketable and sticky services uh, they're the only ones that are able to collect data through those services and have bought up all these other companies in the advertising ecosystem to to reach into third party websites. And get your data through right. that way, uh, and to oppressively send you updates over your phone to try to get your location data and other data through your phone in that way, and then finally to to use all that uh, to use that infrastructure in the uh, in the in the um, more more explicitly in the advertising uh, sector. Um, they, they've they've absolutely yeah. uh, engaged in certain anti-competitive behaviors, and yet. Our government doesn't really have any way of, of of solving any of those issues. So this is this is interesting. And if you worry, as I do, about uh, uh, anti-conservative bias in ads, uh, having multiple ad companies who are basically living off of the uh, the data portability stream uh, means that you're much less likely to be discriminated against uh, in uh, distribution of ads because the um, the people who distribute them can't afford to do things that are economically foolish but uh, ideologically satisfying absolutely yes um, and I, I think that look we sh- we need more diversity in, in political viewpoints on these platforms I think if you talk to the platforms and I'm not advocating this but if you talk to them uh, they will say that look there are certain action it's it's not the political perspective but it's rather the 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 perpetuation of misinformation or uh, mm-hmm. let's say uh, I don't I don't want to you know attribute anything in particular but they will they will argue that there are these very clear lines against our hate speech policy or our um, uh, misinformation internal oh that's preposterous policy. they have no idea what disinformation is and they barely know what hate speech is it's something that you know I uh, somebody got deplatformed the other day for using the wrong pronoun I uh, and that well of course that's hate speech because it's you know anti LGBT um, uh, but uh, yeah I, I I don't think that uh, uh, the platforms themselves can say yeah we know exactly what we're enforcing and it's clear I think they can say that they can say it right now and there's no nothing no stick against them for saying that which is why I say and and Ben says we need to we need to have a whole new regulatory regime that applies to this sector so I'm not sure about regulation but I like the idea of saying if the problem is that people are extracting psychic income from uh, their uh, imposing their social views on on others uh, because they make so much money that that you know why not? I that the idea of saying well then maybe they need more competition and rather than going at it by looking at the free services, we should look at the underlying ad market that supports it and and say what can we do to build more competition in that market uh, 
very interesting approach and, and one that uh, might attract conservatives as well as uh, uh, the more standard reformers. Well, Dupayan, uh, this was terrific. Uh, uh, and uh, I usually ask our guests if they have upcoming events, speeches, additional reports. Are we going to see Digital Deceit 3 soon? Uh, um, anything that our listeners should be watching for, right? Because uh, uh, this was been a, a great conversation. Well, thank you so much, Stuart. Again, uh, it's just a pleasure to be here. Uh, we are at, at the Harvard Shorenstein Center at the Kennedy School. We are we're launching the Platform Accountability Project um, and uh, are hoping to put out a lot of content uh, and, and uh, research uh, through that vehicle. Um, and uh, are organizing a big event in February for uh, congressional staff. So um, that's uh, good. That's well, put what, put Glenn what, Reynolds on your advisory board. He he has a, an endless stream of uh, 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 stories about Silicon Valley abusing conservatives, uh, <laughs> which I, I'm sure he would be glad to uh, repeat for you. Uh, okay, thanks to uh, Depay and Gosh. Uh, uh, thanks to David, Chris, and Nate Jones for joining us for the news roundup. This has been episode 237 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, yeah, uh, just a reminder, please send us uh, ideas for guest interviews uh, at uh, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Watch my Twitter feed at Stuart Baker for stories that we will be covering in the future. Uh, leave a rating for us on iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher or uh, Pocket Cast, wherever you uh, uh, get your podcasts. Uh, and I have not forgotten that I promised to read the most entertainingly abusive uh, reviews. So get them in soon. I finally show credits. Uh, Lori Paul and Christy Jorge are our producers. Doug Pickett is our audio engineer. Michael Beaver is our intern. I'm Stuart Baker, your host. Please join us next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.